Pelotero Pickle episode 55. This is kind of a different episode. We have a special guest, assistant hitting coach to the Red Sox, Pete Fatsy. We dig into all sorts of topics. This is really more of a conversation. We talk about player development, creating culture, uh, accountability, all sorts of really good high-level hitting stuff. You're going to really love this one. Check it out. Pelotero, I think it's 55, 54 and a half. All right, here we go. Pelotero Pickle episode 54.5. This is a special episode. We have a guest, Pete Fatsy, assistant hitting coach to the Red Sox. Very excited to have Pete join us. Chris and I have known Pete for, I don't know, what, 10, 15 years now? Yeah, absolutely. It has, has to be. Pete's joining us uh, from the road, from uh, the from his job. So we're very thankful that he's making time for us here. Uh, how is how's everything going? Good. Um, obviously we're in the, uh, we're in the thick of a, uh, of a, of a pretty tight playoff race right now, which is exciting. Um, it's been good. It's been good. It's, uh, you know, a lot of ups and downs and, and this is kind of the time of the year where, you know, you're trying to put your best foot forward. So exciting on that front. Um, and it's, it's obviously really special, really cool to be able to go to Fenway park every day and, and consider that your office. So I never, never take that for granted. So on the baseball gonna, front, all is well. I'm going to give you a good, a big heads up here. Bobby never even introduces me when we have guests on the show. So <laughs> case in point, uh, like, Hey, thanks for coming. And also I'm here, but I'll just be window dressing. Okay. Sees, sees, you need no introduction. Let's, let's, let's start there. You let's need be, no introduction. Let's be real. This is going to turn into the Chris and Pete show in a minute. Cause once you guys get going, and once you guys get going, this is like when we had Mike Bryan on, I just sat back and listened because it was awesome. So, <laughs> so you just brought up a cool point though. So you, you grew up a Red Sox fan, correct? Correct. Yep. So to be a kid that grew up rooting for the Red Sox, to be driving to Fenway every day, the Velasquez kid for the, the Yankees is kind of going through that right now where he's yes. living at a, he's sleeping in his childhood bed. I just heard this morning, he's, he's sharing a room with his brother going to Yankee stadium yeah. How, how cool is it? I mean, I, I grew up when I was in like, you know, every year they asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, professional baseball player. I want to drive to the field as my job. You get to drive to Fenway Park every day. That's epic. Like, that's yeah. so cool. And you're young. Yeah. It's not like this is like tail end of your career. You're really just getting going with pro ball. Um, mm -hmm. Like, how cool is it to go to Fenway every day to, to look up at the green monster I mean, I don't even want to get into the lifestyle of the the rich and famous yeah. here with with first class travel with the big leagues. But <laughs> how cool is it to get to go to Fenway every day? Uh, it, you know what? It's something that I think. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Um, I remember when I was when I you know was going through the process of getting hired, and um, they you know I was asked or I was asking um, a couple of the people I was really close with the Twins, you know, just perspectives, you know, things I should be thinking about. You know, the joke, the joke that uh, a couple of them made were like, hey, don't, you know, I, I know it's hometown. I know it's, you know, I know it's the Red Sox and you're from that area. You know, try and separate those two things, you know, and and I understand that part from a business perspective. But for me, it, it's essentially impossible to do that. You know, baseball has been a big part of my life. Um, I obviously I grew up a Red Sox fan, had a replica wiffle ball Fenway Park. I feel like, you know, 75 percent of New England probably had a green monster, whether it was a shrub or a side of their house that they had growing up. Um, so for me to go to work here every day or go to Fenway every day is, is unbelievable. And it's, it does help offer a lot of different perspectives. You know, when things are going good or things are, you know, things aren't going as good as we'd like, 
it's just perspective to know that I get to go to a place that, you know, first off means a lot to a lot of different people. It's, it's meant a lot to, you know, it, it, again, staying within my family, like, you know, my brothers, my dad, my cousins, you know, everybody is, you know, it means a lot, you know, the Red Sox mean a lot to a lot of people. So I obviously, you know, I cherish that, but also, like I said, perspective wise, I mean, you walk down some of these halls where some of the greatest baseball players in our game, you know, we're going through every day, sitting in the dugout. I mean, I get to sit next to him, pick Jason Veritek's game every day. Um, I'm again, working with Alex Cora, learning from him and his lens. Um, obviously the scope goes much more, you know, goes, you know, beyond just the, the facility itself. Um, but I'm just, I get fired up every chance, you know, every, every, every opportunity I get to go in and we get to play at home and not to mention um, the crowds and, and how electric that place is. I always joke. Uh, I always say that it's, especially on Friday nights, those seven, seven, 10 games, it's like going to a big, uh, you know, a block party and then a baseball game breaks out. That's how it feels. And it's, it's unbelievable to, to have that type of energy night in and night out. I, on the other hand, in my high school yearbook, in my in the future wrote, uh, will sign a $300 million contract with the New York Yankees. Wow. Um, now, really? I did play for an AL East rival, which I thought was made the point, but um, I did not sign a $300 million contract, um, which is unfortunate, but. No, it's good because if you did that, you wouldn't be involved in Paltero. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know about that. Come on. That's You'd be kicking great. it in yeah. Italy on a beach somewhere. That's right. I mean, well, the, the reason I did it, I, I think I was always just a contrarian, right? So I, as much as I, I, I certainly grew up, I think you were forced to be a Red Sox fan growing up here. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's just, it's the culture. And, you know, it's funny as I, I was listening to, to Rob Gronkowski on the, on the podcast with uh, David Ortiz and, and Carabas and, talking about how sports in new england are different they're they're embedded in the culture and what it was like to the difference kind of between playing for the 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 patriots and now the buccaneers and it, it really is it's 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 iconic it's cultural it's here athletes are way more than than hollywood actors are in la like it's just different and yeah. i i don't I, you know for me i i don't necessarily uh I don't necessarily shy away from the spotlight, I guess. Um, and so I certainly uh, appreciate what Boston brings to the table and how much people care about the game. So um, it's pretty cool. But more importantly, what I would like to say is have the dugouts gotten bigger or are they still yes. the same size? Well, they definitely went. I mean, I'm trying to think if they've made any renovations since, what, see, 15 or 16 was your last year going in there? Yes. Was it, so – I don't necessarily know if they they haven't gotten any wider, but they have gone a little bit further in towards the field. They added that top step. I honestly don't even know when, but you know, especially with, I mean, obviously the the there's a lot of constraints when dealing with space in Fenway, but you know, they've gotten really creative with like the clubhouse spaces and um, coaches' rooms and meeting rooms. And you know, the really cool thing about uh, some of the some of the um, you know the plans and things that they they have in the works, um, it's all about maximizing every square foot there so like you know there's there's other projects that i believe are in the works going into next year as well in terms of reconfiguring the space making it you know larger in some areas and adding some uh, some training space some rest and recovery space so i'm pretty stoked to see what that looks like on that note i will be in your dugout on friday which is kind of cool i feel i feel like normally i would feel uh 
I don't know, kind of indifferent about being in the major <laughs> league park, but I will be coaching in the same dugout that you coach in, in the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. No, I, I can't say coaching. I'll be a consigliere in the Red Sox <laughs> rivalry game. Nice. Uh, I'll leave a ball. I'll leave something for you. Uh, you'll know. I'll know that. We'll make sure the presence is felt. I'll make sure something's left there for you. Biggest yeah, I, I was thinking like a piece of gum <laughs> on the wall. Um, you know, uh, uh, Pete was here, and then I can. You know what they do inside the monster? Apparently, everybody signs the monster. But, yep. Yep. Uh, Very cool. Yeah, so, like, I'm I'm waiting for my uh, my special thing that will you know let me know. So just surprise me. It'll be more fun that way. <laughs> Sounds good. In, in in all seriousness, though, like. I, I mean, I remember the first time I got to play there. It was 2015, and not only that, but I had to play left field, which is even more iconic, I think, just because – not more, but just obviously that big green wall and left is uh, – it stands out amongst, you know, just about any cathedral in baseball. And, um, you know, obviously Fenway is super cool, and uh, I'm glad you get to be a part of it, man. And it's part of what I think we all – when we all met – this is, I guess, will kind of lead us into the show um, and, and more, I think, back end stuff about how we got to where we got to. Um, I, do you remember sitting in the room in Nashua? It was probably, I don't know, 11 years ago. And you, I think you brought this up to me earlier in the, in the year. Like, do you, it's kind of like surreal. Do you, like, do you believe that, you know, we've all gotten to where we've gotten to and, and done the things we've done? And, and part of what I want to ask you is did you ever imagine this or like assume that like you could get an opportunity like this um in terms of like not just being a red sox coach right but like just achieving in a professional way like beyond the play like being a player yeah uh, that's a really i mean i would say if someone had told me i mean heck 10 years ago five years ago that you have an opportunity to, to impact major league players on a daily basis. I mean, not just with the Red Sox anywhere, you know, I, it, my job probably would have dropped a little bit because I, you know how it works. It's, it's such a, it's such a tight circle and to be able to, to number one, have an opportunity to get in and coach um, and buy, you know, build trust with players and people and just, you know, that, it, it just, it's, it's, you know, it's an opportunity that not many get, but to, to go back to kind of that, you know, that, that, that setting you're talking about. I believe it was the three of us, Alex Trezza, Nick Salati, I believe was there as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it is interesting. I never thought of it as for, at least for myself, the end goal being, you know, major league coach or, or anything. I, I think at the time I was in a place in my, my own personal career where I had a lot of unanswered questions. You know, I, I was a, I was a pretty good college player very inconsistent pro. And I was searching for answers. I, I didn't know why or what the heck was going on and with my own career. And I didn't know why I had, you know, such success. And then, you know, you know, just surmounting failure. And I, I had a really hard time dealing with that. And then obviously see, we had a mutual friend introduce us, um, which was obviously probably the most influential thing in my baseball career to which then you introduced me to Bobby. And uh, I think it was, the opportunity to learn from you guys, uh, you were going through your, your kind of, I guess you could call it a swing transformation. Bobby was at the forefront of, of a lot of um, new ways of, I guess, or identifying things that may not have been conventional at the time. And I, it, I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, there's so much stuff I do not know. There's just so much stuff I don't know. 
and that just became a like a relentless pursuit like almost a like it became an all like encompassing pursuit so no matter what i was doing whether it was coaching at a training center coaching high school kids you know whatever consulting pro guys i was just obsessed with trying to consume information and apply it and then test it and come up with another theory and test it or see you know see how things were aligning together whether it be player specific movements whatever um, but I go back to that instance when we all met and kind of sat down and you introduced me and kind of brought me into this, this group. I knew something was very special because, again, I knew you and Bobby at the time were thinking differently and, and, and thinking, I guess you could say you guys were thinking ahead. You know, you guys were challenging conventional ideas, and that was really intriguing to me. Um, so to say, again, that I had plans or thoughts that one day I'd be in a major league dugout, it was, that, that's, that would be a lie. But I for sure knew that what was going on you know, in, the, in that space at that time was unique and was different. And I think success leaves clues. I, I don't think it's by chance that you know, we hit it off and then obviously you, know, you introduced me to Bobby and, and, and the whole group. And we all were kind of had that, you know, wanting to push ourselves and, and learn and apply as much as we could. Um, wow. And we didn't settle for just like you know, your standard answers. We were like, no, we wanna seek the truth as much of the truth as we could possibly find. So I guess I, think, I know it's a, a very roundabout answer, but that's kind of what I got. No, that's awesome. And I think, so as part of, I think part of the mission, obviously that we have with Pelotero and, and even just this show in, in, in general, as much as we talk about kind of current events and, uh, you know, things going on in the, the landscape of sports and landscape of the world, even sometimes, the, the, our biggest objective, I think with, with the company um, and, and I think even before we started Pelotero was to create uh, empowerment, I guess is the right word. I know that's like a kind of a trendy 2021 word to, to say, but mm -hmm. to like empower athletes and, and even just people or anyone for that matter to, to, to think on their own and really learn to, to, to grow and discover and, and, and always not necessarily I wouldn't even say challenge conventional wisdom, but like to, to, to just go through the phases of discovery, because I think to become a great hitter, you have to have a tremendous sense of self. Right. And I think that's something that I noticed in my time playing. And, and one of the things, one of the analogies that I always used was, um, and, and, you know, you mentioned Alex too, and Alex was coaching at, at LIU Brooklyn at the time when I was, uh, first getting to the big leagues. And I remember I was sitting in, in the dugout one time during one of his exhibition games in the fall. And one of his, they, they made like four or five errors in an inning or something like that. And one of the kids came up to me and, and said, man, you must hate watching this after playing in the major leagues. And I said, no, I love it. It's great. And kid looked at me like I had seven heads. And then after the game, Alex asked me to say a few things to the team. And I started saying to everyone, I said, you know what the difference is between you guys and major league players? And they all kind of were just dying for the answer as if I was going to give them a magic pill that said, you know, this is how to do it. I said, the difference between major league players is they're just really good at being routine. They're really good at being good at what they're good at. <laughs> they're yeah. really good at, yeah. you know, I said, Derek Jeter feels a ground ball the same way in the first inning of game four of the season with nobody on as he does in the ninth inning with two, two runners on the winning run on second and, and the tying run on third. And the reason he can do that is predominantly because 
he has like this tremendous confidence, right? And it, and it comes from a place where, and I think the only way you can really gain that confidence is through through self-discovery, development, and, and growth individually, right? Does that make sense? I know that's not really kind of a question, yeah. but it's... Uh... No, no, it's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, it's one of the things that I've found, I mean, just coaching at the major league level and obviously coaching, you know, throughout the minor leagues, um, throughout the minor league levels, it's it's really interesting. You know, you said doing the routine just consistent or to the highest level of their ability as often as possible, right? Like catching the ground ball, you know, doing those things. You know, I found that the more and more you progress in terms of coaching at the highest level, how much simplicity wins out a lot of times. And I say that because a lot of these guys that we have are unbelievably talented. They have crazy diverse backgrounds, whether it's where they're from, where they played. But at the end of the day, like there's the, the, the idea is relatively simple. Like we have to be on time. We have to, you know, we're trying to get a good pitch and we're trying to hit it as hard as we can, as often as we can. So it's like trying to always, as, 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 as complex as the game seems, you know, it's like, how do we boil it down to make sure that we're always getting to the root of what went, what, what plays out over the long, the long haul. And like, to your point about self-discovery, I feel that, you know, and, and for a lot of reasons, you know, guys in the big leagues, they have more miles under their belt and they have a, They've had to with, you know, withstand the ebbs and flows of their careers. So there's more learning opportunities there, but they just have a better idea of how to do those things more consistent, like you said. So I think yeah. that's like very, very well said, C's. Well, I, and I think even from, you know, I think that was such a jump off point for, for all of us that were in that room, right? And I, you, you mentioned, you know, challenging conventional wisdom and, and learning, right? And I think, yeah. I, I think to a man, all of us in that room would say, uh, you know, I'd give you something, some stock reply, like that was the first day of the rest of my life. Right. Yeah, or that absolutely. was the first year of the rest of my life. And I think that, you know, to your point before about not necessarily having an expectation of where it was going to lead you. Right. Or, or thinking right. about, you know, where's this going to take me? And I had a very similar experience when, you know, when I signed with uh, the, the, the twins in 2012, and I blacked out there for a second, by the way. So I couldn't remember <laughs> what team it was. Um, but when, like, I had a very similar experience. When I say it was the first time, and I remember right before I signed, um, I had an opportunity. I'd gotten invited to another just invitation um, kind of tryout, like with a bunch of players. And uh, I told my dad I wasn't going to go, and he was losing his mind. Um, and I said, Dad, I don't need them to tell me that I'm a major leaguer anymore. Like, I just don't need it. And it was so freeing because it allowed me to go down this path of, I know I'm doing the right thing, meaning I know I'm trying to get better, right, every day. And I felt supremely confident at that point because of that, that like, I didn't need somebody to accept me. I didn't need, I, I didn't need society's approval to get, you know, to where I wanted to go. I was already there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. like it, Absolutely. It, and, Absolutely. And, I think it's such a valuable lesson because we're sitting here talking about this and, you know, 10 years later, you're in a big league dugout. I had an opportunity to play in the big leagues. You know, Bobby's become one of the most well-respected hitting guys on the planet. Um, you know, Trezza got a power five job. So it, it, it's weird because like, I, I think the, the less you chase the, the actual carrot, the more likely you are to get it right. Like it, it's uh you know, I always use analogies to back when you're uh, in grade school and stuff like that. So, um, but uh, like, let's, I mean, I guess let's kind of like pivot. If, if you were, could go back in time as a player 
um, let's say high school, college years, like what, what would you do different, Pete? What would you like, like for your own personal yeah. path as a player, I guess? Yeah, I, I think, I think when I was younger, I mean, me, me personally, obviously, but like when I was younger, baseball was always a secondary sport, obviously being in the Northeast, I was a hockey guy and baseball was just something I played. Like I played, I mean, it wasn't just baseball. It was wiffle ball. It was any sort of competitive hand-eye game I could play. Like I was, I was always doing something, especially in the summer months, but I never was, you know, obviously I didn't have a ton of formal, you know, technical coaching. So I get to college started to get some technical coaching, started to understand about the game. And I had like a pivot moment where, you know, I, I was trying to like learn all of these things all, of it, all at once, you know, I had, you know, performed decently in my freshman year, but then I remember I went to summer ball and I'm, you know, taking BP the first day or the first week, whatever I'm struggling. And um, afterwards the coach asked me, he says, Hey, like, you know, or, or excuse me, afterwards uh, a couple of the guys were like, Hey, let's play some home run derby. You know, we're just hanging out. We had nothing to do with summer ball. So all of a sudden I completely go out of this like four stance I was in where I'm low and I'm bent and my hands are stagnant and I'm just like not athletic at all. And I'm standing up, I'm open stance, just how I hit my whole life and I'm launching balls. And the hitting coach is like walking to his car. He comes back and he goes, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh, we're just playing some home run derby. He goes, no, no, no. What are you doing? Like, why are you hitting that way? And I'm like, this is how I've hit my whole life. And he goes, well, then what the heck are you doing? Like, why are you hitting, you know, this way? And I'm like, Oh, well, that's how I thought I was supposed to hit. And that was a moment. The reason I'm saying that is because that's kind of a, that's kind of like, it's an analogy at that point, but it's also something that has happened to me throughout the course of my professional career. Like I, I had this idea of, I need to do X, Y, and Z in my swing. And I didn't trust my athleticism and I didn't know enough about myself to kind of take the governor off and just play. You know, if that, if that makes yeah. sense, like yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know enough about what made me me. You know, and this, it took some guy who I had known for a week walking to his car, seeing me move, going, that's free and athletic. That does damage. Like, that's on time. That's, that's what you should be doing. So I'm like, oh, in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's easy. I've done that my whole life. You know, and I remember from then on, it was just like, you know, my sophomore, junior years, it was like someone just, like I said, took the governor off. And I just felt like I was playing. And it, it was like very freeing. And then again, I had a similar moment to that in pro ball where, you know, all of a sudden you change levels and you think, Oh, I need to do something different to survive here. Like I can't do what I've always done. And you know, you have to make, it's a game of adjustments. So you have to be willing to make adjustments, but you can never really get too far away from who you are and like what makes you, you. Um, and that's something I just try and remember all the time when I coach, because I think a lot of times in, in, in coaching dynamics, that's like one of the things that gets, can be uh, dismissed easily because you have, you know, we see a player, we see all the things they can be and, and, and all we can do this adjustment with his hands and this with his setup or that, but you forget that this guy's taken, you know, a hundred times the amount of swings on his own, you know, in a setting outside of here than he ever will with you. So there's a story to this guy you have to be willing to learn before it just becomes do X, Y, and Z. So I always try and keep that mindset of myself as a college kid thinking I need to do it one way. And then having a guy say, no, man, you need to learn about yourself. And like, you need to be free athletic and this works. You just got to learn why it works. That's yeah. it. So well, you just brought up a great point. And I'm going to, I'm going to preface everything by saying, you know, Bobby said at the beginning of the show that uh, it was just going to be me and you talking. Well, this, this is force fed upon me now because he told me that there's a, no, I'm good I don't now. know, a wood chopper outside of the there's door. There's a weed, but that was like 20 minutes ago. There's a weed whacker yeah. right outside my door. So I had to mute myself. So I'm good now. <laughs> I actually, I had something I wanted yeah. to say specific to what yeah. Pete was just saying. And all of that was very well said. And I feel like, 
a lot of people assume that like you know these new the new age coaches and the 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 Twitter coaches all you know whatever labels get put on you they think that we do like this crazy stuff and like and some people are doing crazy stuff you go on Instagram and there's people doing weird stuff I feel like <laughs> I feel like information allows you to be more simple I like that's my approach to hitting like if if I get a player in the cage we're getting more simple and we're getting more strategic about what we're doing versus like throwing stuff on the wall and trying random drills and doing weird stuff that you see online. It, it should allow you to filter more than explore, I guess. And there's times okay. to explore, but um, specific to what you were just saying about your natural swing, that was an awesome story. Uh, I never did like a leg kick in a game ever. I never thought I was allowed to. So that really resonated with me, mm-hmm. but I wish uh, a, a hope that I have for like the baseball world is for every parent of every baseball and softball player, like take a video of your kid when they're four years old. So you have that benchmark. So you have the blueprint for how this kid moves and then always go back to that and say, all right, this is the four-year-old unrefined, uncoached raw. This is how this player moves and use that as your blueprint. And I think, I think a lot more hitters would be better off using that as a roadmap than chasing who knows what from who knows who online. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, well, the funny thing is, too, is you sit there and you and you go, "All right, what? Like, what's what's the end goal of being a coach, right? Like, what's the end goal of of trying to, you know, have a have an impact on somebody's career?" And I and I say this all the time. I was like, "My goal is to have somebody not need me anymore, right?" Like, and I think from a from a sheer egotistical standpoint, I think a lot of people in today's game want to be needed or even in just the world, they want to be needed, right? Like they want to be uh, necessary in, in people's lives. And I would argue the opposite is true for the best coaches that I ever had. And the, 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 the reason I say that is not from my standpoint. Like I feel like the more I don't need a coach, the more I need a coach. And I know it's counterintuitive and all that stuff, but like, if you are a positive influence on somebody's life, career, whatever, uh, that's when realistically, like that person's going to turn to you more and more. And that's where the real stuff can happen, right? Like that's where the, you know, and I talk about trust bridges all the time, like building a bridge of trust as a coach to have an athlete feel like they can open up to you. Um, that's, that's the biggest challenge. And I think ultimately the thing that needs to happen the most. Well, to interject there, C2, I mean, you know, you having been in a major league, you know, clubhouse and, and being around that dynamic and being working through the minor leagues and, 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 and two Q as well. I mean, you've, you've worked with, you know, countless, you know, major leaguers and minor leaguers and college players. How many times are you in the cage and the conversation you start and the trust you start with has nothing to do with like that guy's swing? Literally. I mean, there's, there, it, it's like, it's like a vulnerability factor you have to work through at first. It's like getting the, the guy, like getting whoever's in front of you to know, the, the, you know, you, we are here for your best interests. First and foremost, it's like the, that is the, that is the benchmark for me with all coaching experiences. Even when I was in the, even I think when I was in the private sector, it's like someone will come in and, you know, you get somebody that's all excited to work with you. And it's like the first day, the first however many sessions is trying to figure out the person and trying to build that trust so that the player can be vulnerable and talk about, you know, whatever, like whatever, whatever could be restricting their, 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 their I don't know, I don't want to say their moves, but their mindset, their approach what's going on you know what's going on in game or or what could be carrying over in game I I just find that to be honestly like probably as important the soft skill being almost as important as the hard skill 
especially early on in, in, in coaching relationships. So, so how much of it, how much of it would you say starts with mental before physical? Um, like what, like if you had to give a number to it, like a percent, a number, I mean, I, don't know. I would probably say a lot of the, a lot of the adjustments, there's never an adjustment that doesn't start with, a, with, with, without a mental cue or, or, or something, something mental, uh, relative to the player's mentality. I would say, I, I don't, I'm not a big believer in just jumping right into movement or cues, unless we have an idea of like where the, the mindset or the mentality behind the player, because obviously intention is going to drive action, right? So half the time it could just be, Hey man, we got to get going and anticipate, anticipate X, or we got to get started earlier or, Hey, why aren't you getting started? Well, you know, I'm, oh, man, I'm, I'm finding myself in, be in between pitches a lot. That's why I feel like I'm late. You know, so a lot of the movements that happen down chain are relative to this, this hitter specifically, maybe just being indecisive and not committing to a speed or a location or whatever the game plan is for him. You know, so I would say there's, there's really no adjustment that happens without uh, an adjustment to the mentality. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that's kind of where, where my standpoint yeah, is. That's, that's awesome. I used to always ask players, what, what pitch do you fear? What, what, what pitch do you fear? What, what's giving you trouble? Yeah. And I think that question, question, it leads you to, you know, what, what mistake are they trying to cover? That's probably ca causing all their yep. other problems. Cause if they're, yep. if they're the fastball in is the one beating them, then they're cheating to it and it's exposing them to everything else. Or yep. if the breaking ball is killing them, then that has its own set. You know, each, each mm -hmm. hitter has a story, as you said, and getting to the root of it, you know, I, it's transactional versus relation re, uh, relational with regard to this dynamic where if a player just comes in and, and, a lot of stuff, you know, with me, when my stuff started going off, I started getting a lot of like transactional situations happening where people just mm -hmm. want to come to me. They want to come to me for answers. Like, Hey, just tell me what to do. Mm. And I was like, dude, that's not what I'm about. Like, I want to, <laughs> I want to know you as a player. I want to, I want you, I want you to be able to call me during the season. And I want to know what makes you tick. Not like, Hey, remember that one thing I told you that one time that worked in the cage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I need, I need to be able to invest in you and have a relationship with you. Not just, tell you movements with your body and movements yep. with your back. It's, it's so deep, so much deeper. And I guess there's a role for the transactional thing, if that's what the player wants, but it's not what motivated me whatsoever. And I didn't feel like I could help a player to the best of my ability without knowing them as a person and knowing, you know, wh where they came from with their athletic career and what they were trying to achieve. And like, are you trying to hit for more power? Are you trying to hit for more average? Are you trying to improve your on-base percentage? Like what is your motivation? What's yep. driving this? Um, because typically the guys that come to you are the ones that are struggling, right? They're not, they're mm -hmm. 350 with a bunch of homers. They're not coming to talk to you. They're, they're happy and they're content usually yep. that kind of performance. Absolutely. So you're, you're dealing with failure out of the gate. So um, you, you, you brought up tough. a good point about understanding the why, right? Like understanding the why things happen. Um, like the funny thing is, is I, you know, and, and uh, you know, through your experience, like any level that doesn't matter, like, did you feel like, and, and Bobby, I guess I'm asking you a question too. Did you feel like most people were like understood the why or were consumed with the why as much as I think we became at some point or, or no? Are you talking about the players themselves? Yeah. Like, just most in the general, players like through? players, coaches, anything like what, anything. I, it's a good, that's a good question. I would say it was, it was very inconsistent in the private sector for me. Um, I, I would, uh, my sentiment with Bobby, exactly. Like we had some guys that, you know, or players, I should say, that would come in and they were, it was very, it was very specific what they wanted, or, or they had a, you know, they had a kind of, I don't want to call it a single track mind, but they were like, you know, they wanted to be the best they could. Others, 
you know, just wanted to, they wanted to survive and maybe make their freshman team, you know, and others were just, you know, then there were some players that were, that were coming in and, and, and maybe it was, they were on their last leg and it was like, Hey, I need an adjustment here or, or my time, you know, I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning type of thing. So I think the, a lot of it was driven by where the players were at at that point. You know, I think at the professional level, what's interesting to me is, you know, and again, this goes back to the individual with some of the young guys that get up or, or, or cruise to, through to the big leagues really fast. I think a lot of those guys, they get they're, they're just so talented. Like they are immensely talented. So the why for them and like why they're doing things is kind of, I don't know if necessarily know if it's at the, if, if it's something they even consider because at, the, at the time. And then they get to the highest level and it's like, well, wait a second. Like, why do I need to do this drill again? And it's, you know, you have to walk them through that process, but it happens pretty routinely at the, you know, for us, the big league level is you're always having to, you're always having to like um, reaffirm the why, you know, and, and just keep that at, like the center of the conversation. Um, and again, some of it's just because the guys are so talented, they get up and they're able to just do things other people can't. So they never really had to consider it. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. They, uh, yeah, if they've never encountered failure, if they've never yeah. really, really struggled, and there's guys that are that talented. It's yep. like, you, you, I feel like you need to go through that failure to, to find your true identity, um, to find conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, most, most guys that I worked with, most of them just needed to be like, F everybody, this is my career, I'm taking ownership, <laughs> this is me, I need to own this. And once they did that, yeah. once they once they took full accountability and they they said, you know what, I'm going to listen to everybody, but ultimately this is my thing. I got to mm-hmm. make it happen. And mm-hmm. you know that's when they start committing to pitches. That's when they start buying into mindset and approach. And and you know if they have a game plan, they're gonna they're gonna sell out to it, but not panic if it fails for a given day. Mm-hmm. You know they they're more committed to the to the mindset when yep. when that happens. And and until that happens, everybody's kind of on the fence. And right. the guy, guys that have made that transition, it's so obvious and they're so, it's so clear that they have an identity. And in, like, I think I saw that with yeah. Chris in Toronto where he, we, we've talked about this on, on the pickle before where with the twins, he didn't feel confident, didn't feel like he could be himself, was kind of like unsure, like in this constant state of unknown. And when he got to Toronto, he just got to be himself. And that's when players perform their best anyway. So um, it's just that mindset. Like it's the guy that believes they're the dude before they are the dude. And then they did mm-hmm. their, their actions show it and their cool. demeanor shows it. They're all the nonverbal stuff speaks so loudly with those guys. So mm-hmm. let me, let me ask, let me ask a question. Where does that come from? And, and can it be taught to players at a younger age? Is there an opportunity? Is there a value proposition there in baseball instruction to be able to instill more confidence in players, more proper mindset about conviction in players. And if so, does it like, are we looking at a diminishing returns type of situation where, you know, we're going to under coach them in terms of technical and, and, and mechanical skills and, uh, and being hard on them and, and, and their performance versus, you know, instilling confidence and support through a game that's built around failure. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. I, I would say my take, and, and it may be, uh, it may be a little bit different than most, or maybe, maybe not, maybe the lines. I, I believe co- in, in competition personally. Like I think, it, you know, obviously results matter to a degree, you know, results like they're, 
I think winning, playing winning baseball, having a winner, having a loser, I think those things, those things are, are, are kind of like the fire that forges resiliency, that forges, you have to answer those questions, that you have to look for your whys. I didn't search for, I mean, me personally, I didn't search for my why because everything was going great. It was because, as Tuke said, I was in the state of flux trying to figure out who I was. And, you know, I had to answer the question, okay, you can either go this direction and you're out of baseball, you're going to law school and then you're going this way, or you're passionate about trying to figure out what makes you you and digging deep. And, and, and it's kind of the road, I don't want to say it's a road less travel, but it's a much more challenging road. Um, and I chose that direction, you know, like I had to make that decision. Now, obviously that's at a, at a different level, you know, taking the context away from youth baseball. But I think when you look all the way down the ladder, to me, it's, it's not all about winning, but I think competition breeds a lot of that. You know, when, when it's, when it's and, and by competition, I don't just mean winning a tournament. I'm talking about, you know, competing with yourself, you know, like when you, you know, having the ability as an instructor to, 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 to I don't want to say to provide, uh, con, I guess, to provide constructive feedback, like having those conversations that aren't just geared towards making sure that guy signs up for another five lesson package, you know, having a tough one that says, hey, you didn't bring it today or you showed up today, you didn't go through your movement prep, like that's unacceptable, we're gonna do it before you hit. You know, holding guys accountable in those settings. And I think when I, so when I say winning baseball, I think that's, that's what breeds winning baseball, the culture of that. And I know Bobby and C's, you guys have that at AB, at, at AB your training facility up in New Hampshire. That was something I took a lot of pride in in my training facility. Um, and that's something I take a lot of pride in, in general, is just, is the culture that you create through that mindset. So again, it's not just about going out and winning a baseball game, but if you're thinking about what, what creates winning baseball players it's the consistency to those processes that's kind of probably my best answer yeah i i always get intrigued by the enigma of the one percenter right because there's within i I don't understand why there's such a thing as one percenters right when people say that and because my mindset is always all right, well, once you get to the one percenters, you now weeded everybody out. And it's like, no, 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 there's a bell curve there too. There's one percenters among the one sure. percenters. And it's it's funny to me because I think from a macro level, you could say that and 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 kind of you know paint that picture clearly. What I didn't understand is how I, I guess how players like they just fold, like right? They just fold. Um, some players, not all. Uh, and, and that's the part that, that scared me a lot where it was like, and I think that's bringing this conversation full circle where I, I, I knew that everybody on this conversation would be successful in whatever they chose to do. And it's cause they just weren't going to stop. Right. You're not yes. going to, you're not going to back away. You're not going to shy away from, from something difficult. You're going to understand that, you know, as much as, and, and one of the things I talk about all the time is towing the line between, uh, wanting to excel and, being humble enough to know that you're going to fail. And, and I feel like the greatest discoveries in the world have happened because of that, you know, Thomas Edison, uh, anybody that's, that's, that's had a groundbreaking discovery will tell you I've failed, you know, 9,999 times to get it right to 10,000th. And it, how do you balance that? Right? Like, how do you, how do you teach, how do you teach it is, is I think the, ultimately the question that it comes down to, right? How do you get a person to understand that all your failures are just one more step toward your success. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think as it, as it relates to the instructional setting and too, cause I, I want to hear your, your thought process on this as well. Like, I just think it's, you have to create those, op- you have to, you have to create those opportunities in your training. 
like you, you have to acknowledge them. And I think, again, that's one thing if we're, if we're speaking specifically to training centers and you know, tra- I guess, uh, you know, the uh, performance centers and whatnot, you know, baseball academies, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, to me, it's a, it's a culture thing that's inside your four walls, you know, like, you know, you want to build resilient baseball players. Like how does resilient, how do base, how do resilient baseball players train? Well, number one, they're going, there's going to be an element of failure. Like we're going to challenge them to a point, maybe whether it's, let's call the 70% success rate, 80% success rate in some capacity at some point where they're not just, you know, not every day is going to be a building day. Today may be a day where I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not feeling great or I'm not, I have to, I have to pull from a, from a different, a different club out of my bag, something, something that requires them to go outside the scope of just, all right, I'm showing up and just kind of checking the box with my routine today. Yeah. I, I have, I think I have a lot to say about this. Um, I think players that are good, like when you know you're good, when you know you show up to a field and you're the best player there, you're, you have the ability to be the best player there. It doesn't really motivate you to kind of go home and work hard. Mm-hmm. So I think there needs to be an element of like going, getting beat. Like if you, here's an example, you're, you're playing like pickup basketball with some older players and they're just better than you and you know mm-hmm. it, you just know it. And at that point you have a choice. You either going to go lift some weights and practice your shot and work on your dribbling. You're going to put the time in or you're not. And where does that come from? I think a lot of that is creating opportunity for players to kind of feel safe and feel like they can try new things and they can fail, putting them in an environment where, you know, they, they have the opportunity to, to try new things and to explore and, and, and figure it out. Uh, some of it's creating a framework for them and structure and systems where they can develop routines. They can be challenged. They have people around them that are pushing them consistently. You know, I, I always felt as a baseball player, you get to the field that day, you got a good feeling whether or not you're going to, you have a chance to compete or there's some days you, you show up, you're like, we are winning like straight yeah. up. We're not losing today. You, you, and when the team gets hot and you just show up feeling like you're going to win, that, that's to me like the most fun baseball is when you show up knowing you're going to win. So where does that confidence come from? Where does that, can you teach that? I think you, you have to go through a process. And as Pete was saying earlier, there's, there's kids that are so talented. They never encounter failure. How many, how many kids show up at a D1 school when they've been the best player in the field every single time they step on the, on the field? They're the best. They yep. are head and shoulders above. And then they get to college and they go, oh, no. What <laughs> is go-? Like everybody here was that. And these that guys are me. better than me. And holy smokes, I'm in trouble. And then, then they, then they got to <laughs> yeah. figure out what they're going to do. They have to respond. So it's like a, fight, a flight or flight response at that point where you're either going to compete and you're going to take somebody's job or you're going to pack it in and you're going to kind of go beta and say, all right, these guys are better than me. And that's just the way it is. So yeah. there, there needs to be an element of resilience within that person, some grit, some, you know, that, that mental toughness and belief. Yeah. So I think a lot of that comes down to parenting. A lot of it is the coaches you've had. I think a lot of it's just innate in who you are as a person. Um, sure. Chris, you talked about the, the, the bell curve within the bell curve, right? So I talked to when Tucker Frawley was at Yale, we would talk about how you know, everybody at Yale is 1%, but within that 1% is a 1%. And mm-hmm. it's the smartest of the smart kids. You know, there's people <laughs> there that are smarter than everybody else. And there's, you know, there's kids that are in the top, the bottom 10% of, of Yale students, you know, at the Ivy League style school. So um, to, to get to where you want to be, you have to really be committed in so many ways. 
Um, the thing that always intrigues me, and this happened when, with coaching, the, the, there's kids that are 13 years old that think they're good. And I don't understand that. And I would tell kids that I coached, I'm like, look, I'm, I, I was way better than you are right now. And I thought I sucked. So I went, you know, when I was 12, we played in Cooperstown and we, we made it to the championship game and we lost in the championship. We played Panama City, Florida, and there was a kid throwing 80 miles an hour on the mound. And <laughs> I remember going home being like, wow, these kids are way better than me. But I would go back to Hudson, New Hampshire and be one of the top two, three players in the town. And I was completely unsatisfied with that. Like that wasn't even on my radar being top one, two, three in my town. I didn't, yeah. It didn't even like I knew it, but it didn't matter because there was a I had a much bigger vision for what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go and play. And then when I was 13, I went to Chickasha, Oklahoma and played at AAU National Tournament. And these kids hitting homers on big fields. And they're 13 years old. The kid hit a ball over a football bleacher in right field. <laughs> I was like, what the heck is going on? This kid's 6'3", 210, hitting homers. He's 13 years old. I'm like, I got to be better. Yeah. So, you know, I was exposed to it when I was 12, 13 years old. And I knew at that point in my career that I needed to be better than anybody around me. But that wasn't my goalpost. My goalpost was the kid that was hitting homers over the football stadium. So, you know, getting in the weight room wasn't a hard choice for me. I, that was like bare minimum. I had, it, it wasn't even optional. It, right. Like, I had to put that time in if I wanted to even think about sniffing that guy's jock. Like <laughs> I, I was gonna be close to that guy. Yeah. So and then like you go back and look at those rosters. I think Dustin Pedroia was in that tournament. Like there you, wow. you go back and look at those rosters. There's like 20, 30, 40 big league guys playing in that tournament. And yep. at every step along the way, there's gonna be good players. And yes. to be in the big leagues, you're gonna be one of the best 30 in the world at your position. Period. Uh -huh. Period. And even then it might not matter because of service time and, and contract status and whatever, like you don't even, even if you are the top 30, it might not even matter. So you know, where mm -hmm. does it come from? Can you teach it? I think it's just constant exposure. It's yeah, it's, well, it's gotta be who you are. You, it yes. has to be a lifestyle. It has to be a mindset and a, just this internal fire. And yeah, yeah. I, I love that's, listening that's, to that that's because awesome. I love that's listening awesome. to like different perspectives on it because I try to figure out where it came from and everyone, right? And you just talked about exposure to, to, to bigger ponds, I guess the big, the, the, the big fish or small pond versus the little fish, big pond. And that's interesting. Cause I, I really, I mean, I, I got to play in two different countries, but I never was super exposed to travel baseball or big tournaments when I was young. And then Pete, you mentioned, and I was thinking about this as you were talking, uh, but you were, you were talking about uh, something that kind of brought me down this road where um, the, the coaching aspect of it, right. The, the mindset of, of getting an athlete to, to go to a place and, and understanding that it's okay to go there. And I think about the difficulties, right. Between being a private instructor versus being a team coach, right. And even at the youth level. And, and one of the things I see a lot is parents that, uh, and as much as, you know, we need those volunteer parents to coach. I think sometimes they get caught in the emotion of it. Right. And that's, they, they get emotional with the game. Right. And, and if you get emotional with the game, it, 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 cloud, it clouds your vision and your ability to communicate and your ability to not only influence a kid properly, but to have them have an understanding of what is necessary, you know, to become, a, a better player or a better version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where 
the line is kind of murky. And I see it in college baseball a lot now too. You get these, these guys that have these big time jobs, right. And they want to keep these jobs and their jobs rely on winning. And, and, and it becomes really easy to kind of stray away from let's think about player development as much as we think about figuring out how to win games. And that's the scary part, right? Mm-hmm. When, when there's an alternate agenda, when there's a, you know, a, a desire and yearning to, for, for, for your own, salvation and self-preservation whatever it is and i think the thing that i can comfortably say about you know why i'm enjoying listening to you guys so much and why I've, i think we've built a relationship is there's no ego right like we all have our own egos mm-hmm. and the fact that we want to succeed but in terms of like passing a message along to someone is not about you does that make sense is, is that is that mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's that's where i think i'm 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 thrilled to be able to talk to you guys as often as I do and lucky to consider you friends and not to get sappy or anything like that. But I think that's what we you can get share. sappy if you want. Well, yeah, thanks. Well, I think that's our <laughs> commonality, right? And and that's, it comes yeah. from unselfishness and, and I think we all have egos, which is what you need to have, right. But you need to learn how to balance, yeah. balance your own ego and, and what's going to drive your own success with, you know, how you're going to get there. And it's the same thing as like, you know, chasing a hit versus, chasing you know great at bats or, or, or great process mm-hmm. or great swing so it's uh the world's existential it's very existential and i see it in a, in a lot of different lights so um i guess good answers guys you made me go to a place going so, deep good right job. there the one, like one thing i want to one thing i want to add on to what i said earlier was I, I mentioned how i thought i sucked it was i didn't i knew i was good so like we're talking about ego right there i knew i was good i knew when i stepped on a field like I was going to impose myself on the other team. I sucked compared to how good I wanted to be. So it was yeah. like this internal measuring stick of I'm yeah, I'm good now, but that doesn't matter. Right. You know, there, it was, there was no satisfaction in who I was at that moment uh, because I knew I needed to spend more time in the weight room. I need to get faster, stronger, throw harder, hit it further, everything. So there's yeah. there was never satisfaction. So it's, I didn't think I sucked. It wasn't that I, right. I lacked confidence. It was that there was a much bigger picture that I was after. And yeah, you got to have an ego. You got to, you got to toe that line of confidence and cockiness and, and feel like you're the best player in the field when you step on the field. But mm-hmm. as soon as that game's over, like <laughs> you get back to work. Well, it's funny you say that. Like I always joked about and not to continue down this point, but like I always talked about the kid, I call them the kids that pay attention. And what I mean by that is, you know how, I mean, I, I'm sure like, you know, I was, I'm sure like you guys, you know, I, I, I always grew, I grew up watching baseball tonight. Right. And, and web gems was the thing. And I was always watching, you know, like guys making plays and, and, and different, like different actions guys had in the field and how guys were doing, like, whether it was just like communicating on, you know, who, you know, who's got the coverage on a bag, right? Like little things like that. When you're 10, 11, 12 years old, I remember it's funny going to Cooperstown. I remember seeing a team from Florida that we ended up getting waxed by Boca Raton. And these guys are playing like the guys I would see on TV. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh my gosh, like, like, yeah, I can play a little bit, but like, man, there's like other stuff going on. I remember they always played deeper in the grass, like little things like that. Again, like the, like the positioning you would see on TV. So what I mean by the kids that pay attention is, you know how you, you see those kids that come into the facility and, you know, or whatever they're, they're playing, they got their eye black on and they got the glove and the wristband and they're, you know, they're pretending to be their favorite player and they got the bat moving on. And it's like, you know, some coaches are turned off by that. For me, that was the thing that I was drawn to most. Cause I'm like, man, that kid pays attention. Like he's seeing something. There's like a vid he's, he, there's some visual that he's attracted to. I don't know where he saw it, but like his, his, his motivation, his aspiration his his thoughts are going there. 
You know what I mean? And like those yeah. kids, to me, those are the kids that are paying attention. Like that was, I mean, for me, that's, that's how I, and I'm a big believer in visualization. Like that's how I saw myself as a kid. That, that's, that's, that's what I believe was a big factor in my success was I was aware of stuff going on around me that was high level and I was seeing it. And my aspirations were kind of like two said, I was like drawn to that, you know? Yeah. So I think, again, when you're building those environments, that's important to remember, like, you know, when you have your young hitters in there, you know, in your training center, like it was no, it was, it was by design that we tried to schedule our, our training sessions where the college guys were in right before the high school guys, you know, like I wanted them to walk in or our pro guys, you know, I wanted them to walk in and see these guys training and what they were doing and what they, that, you know, all of those things. And I wanted to see like, you know, where guys were gravitating towards. And that, that became, to use your analogy, Chris, the carrot, like, Hey, like, look at these guys, you know? So I think opportunities for that are, are if you're, if whatever facility or ever program you, you have, you're always attracting that level of, you know, that mindset. I think, I think you're doing the right thing. It's awesome. Yeah, man. That's awesome. I, uh, well, I, I think a, we, I have a topic that I want to get into a little bit. And this well, is, I mean, we're going to run out of time here. This guy's got a job. You got I mean, I got about five to 10 minutes. Yes. All right. I want to talk about your experience and your choice to go the affiliated route and get into pro ball versus private Mm -hmm. sector stuff and Mm -hmm. uh, your experience. I've been through some interview processes and I think ultimately my mindset is basically like what Pelotero is now is, was my mindset all along. Um, Mm -hmm. I always felt like I want to be on the player side, not necessarily the team side. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I struggle with that and I still struggle with that because I think pursuing a World Series ring is still something that is inside me. So mm-hmm. being involved on the team side, there's still a part of me that wants to do that. And maybe I will someday. But yeah, uh, how did you how did you get into it? How did it all happen? How did you make that choice? What's your experience been like yeah. from, you know, working, having your own facility to now? Yeah, driving to Fenway Park, which is pretty cool. But it, you didn't go there right away. You were with the Twins hitting coordinator with them, and then mm-hmm. you know traveling and <laughs> going yep. all the affiliates. It's not a far less glamorous lifestyle compared to what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. No, so I guess same thing with the training center is, I mean, I started out in a in a in a space that was, I mean, it was like three separate fishnets, like taped to, I mean, you know, zip tied together. It was a very, it was not a very glamorous place, but it was a, it was, it was our place. We, I mean, we barely had heat some days, and there was. It was not the most optimal place to train, but it allowed me the ability just to focus on trying to put together the best information that I could. And also I'm a big believer in culture. You know, I, I, that's, it's kind of the college side that comes at me a lot because I felt like a lot of the best um, experiences slash, you know, um, uh, I guess experiences, I guess is probably the best way to put it that I had were, you know, were, were in those college settings where you're competing, you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. And so when I created the training center, my idea was, hey, we're going to build a culture here. This is not just about coming and I don't care what organization you play for. And you know, I, that stuff doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean much to me. I want guys in here that are committed to being better than what they, or to the idea that they can be better than what they currently are in all facets, whether it's strength and conditioning, baseball, just as a person, whatever. So we tried to offer those things and little by little that, that was the seed that ultimately grew the most is when we were chasing culture. We weren't chasing, we were chasing culture and content, not just this idea of having a training center, you know, just being the best training center. That was never really the goal. Um, I, it was crazy random. I got, I got, I was called one day or I was, um, I got a text from the, at the time, the director of player development for the twins, just asking if I had interest in interviewing for their hitting coach job. Um, it was a, it was like a, a contact of a contact who recommended me. 
and I went through that month long process. I, you know, I had to do writing assignments and, and over the phone interviews. And then I ended up flying out to Minnesota meeting with the entire uh, baseball ops group and front office and Rocco. And um, I was offered the job. And I remember for me, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was easier than, than, you know, than necessarily, I guess I anticipated early on. And it, for the sole reason of, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of something bigger. I wanted a chance to be in the dugout. I wanted a chance to, to be, to be in, in game with players again, you know, like really in game. Um, I think the coordinator opportunity for me in, in, to start was really great because it was, it was very similar to what I was doing on the facility level, except you didn't have, you know, the day-to-day -day hurdles of like making sure that there was enough toilet paper and <laughs> the place was clean <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? It, it offered me the same opportunity, but without those things. And, and I, when I really stepped back and assessed where I was at mentally, you know, I just was, I was in a place where I wanted, I wanted base, the baseball element, you know, not necessarily the other things that come with, you know, the training center, like, having employees, you know, that, that whole, that whole element. So for me, it was a relatively easier transition on that front. But what I missed were the relationships I built with a lot of those kids and families, you know, you build a lot of trust, people put a lot of trust in you. And yeah, to a degree that, that, that was something I missed. But I, I always joke now, you know, when people, when we were, when we were talking about, you know, things that come up, it's like, oh, we have this issue that comes up. I'm like, listen, it's not like running out of propane uh, at 7 a.m. on a Sunday when you have, you know, six hours worth of coach, you know, coaching that needs to be done. You know, like that's a problem. Like we're nothing, beanies and sweatpants today. Yeah, long John's exactly, you know, hundred <laughs> percent. And you, I was just laughing saying that because I'm like, you know, between you and Siege, you guys know that struggle. And like to me, that's like, oh man, like all right, we got a problem. Like everything else, like I call them luxury problems now, you know, like they're, they're a little bit more luxury problems. They're still challenges. First world problems. Overcome. Yeah. World problems. There's still things you got to overcome, but. Isn't this show has know, luxury problems. It's, it's just a different level. Of, it's just a different level of issue. But I think to be now, to be brutally honest, I gave this, I actually gave this presentation at, at Mohegan Sun. I called it um, 10 things I learned from coaching 10 year olds. Pre the, the training center prepared me for this job more than any other experience I've had. And again, as much as, as much as the information you acquire over coaching and the skills you acquire and the, you know, just learning about the swing and movement and all the things I've done in the last 10, 11 years, like learning how to deal and communicate effectively with young kids and their parents and dealing with all the other auxiliary things that happen over the course of day at a training center, learning how to problem solve on the fly, you know, without skipping a beat, like all those attributes help me coach day in and day out. And I would not be half the coach I am without those, those things. And I'm willing to bet you guys as running a successful company, you guys know that, you know, right now, like you just, it's constant problem solving, it's constant adaptation, it's constant communication. And it's like, without those skills that you forged doing it, you know, in the, in the snowy winters in New Hampshire, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it may, I don't know if you, you guys would feel you were as prepared to, to tackle the next thing. Well, certainly I feel like if I was a cabana boy in Hawaii, life would have been easier, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, this was great, man. Thanks for your time, dude. We, uh, I look forward to uh, hanging out more when uh, you don't have a real job to go to and stuff like that. Well, hopefully You'll that's not for a few more months, man. Yeah, I know. Well, try to win a World <laughs> Series while you're at it. And hey, we'll do our best. That way we'll both be jealous that you have a World Series ring and we don't. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Yeah, it'll get me back on the field. Maybe it'll, challenge, maybe it'll be my challenge, and then before you know it, Tukes will be in a dugout. So. That'll baby. Yeah. I've got a couple of years before that. <laughs> that's possible we've got some work to do here with pelotero so i uh, really appreciate your time pete really i know you're busy i know you got a lot on your plate so really enjoy the conversation we'll have to do this again because we're just scratching the surface and, As always, and on that note pickle out <laughs> stop recording stop recording <laughs>